Hello, and welcome to Asbury Methodist Church's podcast. My name is Forrest Devinney. I'm the lead pastor at Asbury. I uh, hope you, uh, hope this podcast will enrich your walk with Christ. I hope it will increase your knowledge of the Bible. I hope it will also be entertaining enough to keep you coming back for more. We are uh, we're halfway through, roughly, uh, the, the Global Methodist Church Catechism. We are wrapping up the ecumenical affirmations. Um, which means next week we're going to be diving into the things that are distinct to Wesleyan believers. And I keep saying Wesleyan because um, not all of these, and I mean this is the language used in the Catechism too, and the reason it does that is because not all of these are um, unique to the global Methodist Church, um, you, you'll find other Wesleyan groups like the Free Methodist, the uh, aptly named Wesleyan Church, uh, the Church of the Nazarene, and some of the more Pentecostal de- denominations out there will all share some of these beliefs, but not all of them. Um, but the other reason, uh, the other reason we we are we call it Wesleyan is is very simply that we in the global Methodist Church believe that we are reclaiming uh, a lot of the original Wesleyan doctrine and thought that's been sort of lost over the years, including some of the Wesleyan practices that have been lost over the years. Uh, and so we, we are really striving to uh, bring back the things that made the early Methodists, who were not yet their own denomination, uh, such a vital force within the kingdom. Uh, and so that's why it's Wesleyan characteristics and not just Methodist characteristics. We want to be really clear about what we're doing. Um, but that's for next week. This week, I want to kind of wrap up and, and just put a bow on uh, these ecumenical affirmations. And um, what's, what's interesting is uh, if, you, if, you look, uh, if you look at these ecumenical affirmations, because they're based on the Nicene Creed, they have this line in here. Uh, we acknowledge one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. Um, but we're actually going to talk about that under Wesleyan characteristics because we we have things about baptism in there uh, that make us distinct, uh, or at least that make us distinct from other Protestants. And while I do, I, I you know, all Christians who have studied some theology would agree we acknowledge one baptism for the forgiveness of sins, but most of them don't actually mean it. Okay, most Catholics, um, most people in the Catholic Church would not acknowledge a non-Catholic baptism as being valid. Uh, same goes for the Eastern Orthodox Church. Uh, and a lot of Protestants don't mean it at all uh, because they don't acknowledge the validity of infant baptism um, and they'll happily rebaptize people. We'll talk about that a bit on Sunday. Um, so even though that is an ecumenical affirmation, I... I yeah, I think that's one that a lot of Christians don't actually mean when they say it, and that's a problem. <coughs> um, but just quickly, you, in the Catechism, under what is baptism, under the ecumenical affirmations, what we what we do say is baptism signifies the entrance into the household of faith and is a symbol of repentance and inner cleansing from sin, a representation of the new birth in Christ Jesus and a mark of Christian discipleship. 
And that is a pretty broad description that most Christians everywhere would agree with. Um, what we do is, as Methodists, and, and, and I'll ask you, this is something that the Anglicans do, the, I believe the Lutherans do it, uh, the Catholics and the Eastern Orthodox certainly do it, is we take that and we add to it uh, for good reasons, which we'll talk about on Sunday morning. Um, but let's talk a little bit about this very last line. The very last affirmation under the ecumenical affirmations, which is it's one of the last lines of the Nicene Creed, uh, which means this is a fundamental doctrine of the Christian faith. We look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. We look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. This is a really important thing to grasp. Um, too many Christians, far too many Christians, especially here in the West, um, have adopted this idea that our great hope is that we get to escape this world. That our physical body dies and our soul flies off to our glorious home in heaven where it will dwell with Jesus for eternity. Right? This is some of our, some of our favorite, uh, most popular gospel songs, right? I'll fly away. It's all about that. Um, and, and the problem is, it's entirely unbiblical. There is nothing in the Bible to support the notion uh, that our physical body dies, our soul goes off and, and lives for eternity somewhere else. It's just not in there. Because we look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Now let's look at some scripture here. And I'm going to have to uh, bear with me while I flip around to some different chapters uh, before I put this all together for you. Because if you if you pay close attention to scripture, you'll see this everywhere. Now, um, So here's, this is John chapter 6, verses 39 through 40. This is Jesus speaking. And this is the will of him who sent me, that of everything he has given me, I will lose nothing, but will raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. So here's, here's Jesus, and he's not talking about, you'll all come and live with me in heaven forever. He's talking about, I will raise you up on the last day. And he doesn't, he doesn't talk about uh, your soul gets to go live in this disembodied reality forever. You know, he talks about, I'm going to raise you up. I will raise you up. Here in, Jesus, in John 11, 25 through 26, this is Jesus talking to uh, Martha, before he raises Lazarus from the dead, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. <clears throat> so here he very clearly ties the concept of resurrection to the concept of eternal life. Not disembodied life, but resurrected life. And 
if you want to dis disagree with that, you're going to have to disagree with Jesus, and I don't think that's going to go very well for you. He's usually right about things. Um, we have more. Look at what Paul says in Romans chapter 6, verses 5 through 8. For if we have become united with him, that's Jesus, in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. For the one who has died is freed from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. So Paul's talking about death that transpires before the body dies. That we crucify the old sinful version of ourselves with Jesus. And we are raised to new life with him. We can go on and on. Um, there's so many references in the New Testament and also in the Old Testament, but, but largely within the New Testament to this. Jesus talks about it all the time. Listen to what he says. in uh, This is Jesus speaking in John 5, 25 through 29. Truly, truly, I say to you, a time is coming, and even now has arrived, when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. For just as the Father has life in himself, so he gave life to the Son also to have life in himself. And he gave him authority to execute judgment, because he is the Son of Man. Do not be amazed at this, for a time is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and will come out. And those who did good deeds to a resurrection of life, those who committed the bad deeds to a resurrection of judgment. Hear that. Those who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. He's almost describing like you're in the tomb until you're resurrected. And uh, we'll get to that in a minute. Um, but some of the best discussion of, or, or references to help us understand this come from the book of Revelation. I'm going to keep accidentally grabbing the wrong page. So, Revelation 20, uh, 11 through 15. Then I saw a great white throne and him who sat upon it, from whose presence earth and heaven fled, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead the great and the small, standing before the throne. And books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds, supporting what Jesus said. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Right, so those who drowned at sea, coming out of the sea. And death and Hades gave up the dead who were stored in them. So again, people coming out of the places where they've been, being raised to life. Each one of them according to their deeds. And then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. And this is the second death, the lake of fire. 
And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. And then continuing right on in in chapter 21, verses 1 through 8. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there is no longer any sea. The sea represents chaos, by the way. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among the people, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will be no longer any death. There will be no longer any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Then he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give water to the one who thirsts from the spring of the water of life without cost. The one who overcomes will inherit these things, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. So you have all of this about, this is, this is a scene of, of what is going to happen after well, you've got the, the day of judgment and what happens right afterwards as eternal life begins. And it's not people being pulled off the earth into heaven so God can destroy the earth and do away with the physical world completely, as so many people believe. It is it is God coming down from heaven to earth to dwell with his people in this mysterious new heavens and new earth, this unified creation with the veil removed between the two realms and, and all things restored to the way they were before human sin broke God's creation. So you see, we're not people who hope in a disembodied reality. We aren't hoping to spend eternity in heaven with Jesus. And, and you know, so many people like to say this world's not my home. Well, it, it is actually. It's just got some problems that have to be fixed. It needs a little bit of a fixer-upper. But it is your home. You will live here forever. You will have a physical embodiment forever. And this is actually a much more hopeful reality. I mean, our bodies right now, they break down. They have problems. But in the resurrection, they won't. He will take our bodies and renew them and restore them. He will make them new. And we will dwell with God forever in the new heavens and the new earth. <coughs> Let's talk a little bit then about um, some parts of Scripture that trip people up on this, right? Uh, I'll, I'll, Paul, in many of his letters, will talk about the flesh versus the spirit. Um, 
people tend to interpret that as our flesh versus our spirit, and that we have this duality inside us of this impure flesh and this pure spirit, and we want the spirit to win out. But that's not what he's talking about, actually. He's talking about our flesh versus God's spirit. Not that there's a duality within us, but that we as a whole are corrupt and God's pure spirit can dwell within us to, to purify us. And so when he talks about, um, he'll, he'll refer to the life of the flesh versus the life of the spirit. He'll refer to um, uh, fleshly bodies and spiritual bodies. And what he's referring to actually is the bodies we have now, the fleshly bodies, which are just what we know and are familiar with, which are going to decay and fall apart, versus the bodies we'll have in the resurrection, which he believes will be animated and bound together with the Holy Spirit and are therefore incorruptible. also have, um, you know, things like Jesus uh, in John 14, when he says, In my Father's house are many rooms. If that were not so, I would have told you, because I am going there to prepare a place for you. And so a lot of people read that, and assume he's talking about rooms in heaven, right? Our great mansions in heaven, which people love to talk about. Um, but the thing is, uh, the word he uses there in Greek is an, it's not a word you use to describe a place where you go to live permanently. It's a word you use to describe like an inn by the side of the road in the middle of nowhere. Uh, a place you stop at to, to rest and restore yourself before you continue on your journey. What he's actually telling the disciples is those who are living righteous lives, well, they'll die and they will rest in God with me until the day of the resurrection. But there will be a day of the resurrection, and this is a really important and key Christian doctrine, because it's totally unique. No other religion on earth has this doctrine of resurrection. Judaism only kind of does. Uh, This means that Christianity insists that our physical bodies are good and the physical world is good. It's just been corrupted by sin. It insists that our bodies have value. It insists that actually to be fully human is to have a body. Right? This, this actually is where we get all of the basis for our beliefs about sexuality and marriage. Is the insistence that our bodies are good and our bodies matter. If we don't have that, we don't actually have much of a basis for, for assigning any kind of morality to what we do with our bodies. But we, we can do that because our bodies are good. Our bodies are made in the image of God. Our bodies are what we take with us into eternity. And understanding what happens to our bodies in eternity is also crucial, right? We, we, Jesus tells people pretty clearly that, yes, you'll have your body in eternity, but you won't be getting, being married or given in marriage, which means you won't be engaging in any kind of sexual activity, which tells us that our sexuality does not cross over into eternity with us. Which, by the way, tells us that our sexuality cannot, therefore,
be a part of our identity. It can't define who we are because it doesn't last beyond the grave. That's an important point for us to grasp. It's a really important counterpoint to a lot of the ideas in our culture today. See, if we lose the theology of the resurrection, the embodied eternity, we lose a lot of really important parts of Christianity. We, we distill our entire faith to just a series of spiritual platitudes and moralisms, but it's not. Has, it, it touches everything we do with our life. We worship with our bodies. We pray with our bodies. We honor God with our bodies because our bodies are eternal. Because our great hope is the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. This is what makes Christianity distinct. It's, 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 by the way, it's also the proof. It's the proof that our belief is real. Jesus bodily rose from the dead. See, we don't have to take this matter on faith. We know for a fact it happened because people said it happened. And the reason we can trust that is simple. No one would have said it happened if it didn't. No one, absolutely no one in Jesus' day thought this was possible. No religion had a belief that resurrection would happen except for the Jews, and they were all convinced it would only happen to them and no one else, and it would only happen at the end of history, not in the middle. It certainly wouldn't happen to a man who was crucified on a tree for being blasphemous in their eyes. The Romans didn't believe in a physical afterlife. The Greeks didn't believe in a physical afterlife. They all believed in some sort of continuation of life after death, but it happened in a different way, without your physical body, and in a different place. Not here. Not with your body. And so, given the fact that there is no religious belief which inclines people to believe in the resurrection, and the fact that continuing to tell people that he had, been, that he had lived again, that his physical body had lived and walked among them again, uh, would have been A, a ridiculous story that no one would have listened to, and B, would have put them in mortal danger to keep telling people, the only explanation for why they kept insisting it happened is that it happened. There is no other explanation that can explain that in a way that's satisfactory. And anyone who says otherwise is just fooling themselves. The resurrection is such an important thing for us to understand and believe in and acknowledge. And it gives us, a, I think it gives us a lot more hope than this idea that our disembodied soul will just live forever somewhere else in the cloud. Because it means all the things that we love best about this life, the beauty of, of nature, right? the smell of a good meal being cooked, the sensation of the sun on your skin on a warm day. That w it, it means that all these things that we love about God's good creation, we will not lose them. It also means, uh, and, and this is going to be really important. Now, I know a lot of you listening to this may not believe in, in what I'm about to tell you, but understand that 
for a new generation of believers, for younger millennials and Gen Z and, and, and younger, this is a big deal. But it means as we face a world that, that is physically changing, where the climate is shifting, where uh, we'll, we'll be losing natural beauty, we'll be losing entire species of animals that, that we love to see, where the world will be reshaped as the climate changes. If we believe in the resurrection, if we believe in the restoration of God's good creation, all these things we're afraid of losing, we'll get them back. And again, some of you may not be worried too much about that, but I promise you, younger generations are. New generations of believers, this is a big deal. There is very little that is more hopeful than the idea that all the ways we've messed up the world we live in, God's going to undo them. Just as he is going to undo all the bad things that happen in our bodies, right? All the disease, all the injury, all the, the just unfortunate effects of aging, he will undo them and give us bodies that are incorruptible in the midst of a creation that will be restored and made new. This is our great hope as Christians. And it's a beautiful, encouraging thing. That wraps up our ecumenical affirmations. Next week, we're going to talk about some Wesleyan distinctives, which is going to be a lot of fun. So tune in next week. Until then, God bless.